ان الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونعوذ بالله من شرور انفسنا وسيئات اعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلل فلا هادي له واشهد ان لا اله الا الله وحده لا شريك له واشهد ان محمدا عبده ورسوله اما بعد تلذن We begin with the hadith where Al-Imam Al-Bukhari said Haddathana Abu Al-Nu'man Qala haddathana Mahdi ibn Maymun Qala sami'atu Muhammad ibn Sirin Yuhaddithu An Ma'abad ibn Sirin An Abi Sa'in al-Khudri Radiyallahu anhu An al-Nabi sallallahu alayhi wa sallam Qal Yakhruju nasun Min qibal al-Mashriqi ويقرؤون القرآن يخرج ناس من قبل المشرق ويقرؤون القرآن لا يجاوز تراقيهم يمرقون من الدين كما يمرق السهم من الرمية ثم لا يعودون فيه حتى يعود السهم إلى فوقه قيل وما سيماهم قيل ما سيماهم قال سيماهم التحليق أو قال التسبيد The narration then famous narration many of you will have heard of it already regarding the khawarij The famous narration you will have heard of regarding the khawarij where it mentions the Prophet ﷺ said that a group of people will arise from the east. They read the Qur'an but it does not go beyond their throats. They exit from the religion like the arrow exits from its prey. That narration you will have heard of many times. They exit from the religion like the arrow exits through its prey. That narration in reference to the Khawarij. The Khawarij, uh, that group from the groups of innovation, from the groups of deviation, from the groups who follow their desires, and they have errors in various aspects, from the main aspects that are well known of them, is their error in declaring those who commit major sins <coughs> die upon them without tawbah as being disbelievers, kuffar, who will remain in the hellfire forever. Murtakibul kabira, the one who commits the major sin. For them, he dies upon it without repentance, then he is in the hellfire forever. And that is obviously a mistake. Allah tells us in the Qur'an, إِنَّ اللَّهَ لَا يَغْفِرُ أَنْ يُشْرَكَ بِهِ وَيَغْفِرُ مَا دُونَ ذَلِكَ لِمَنْ يَشَاءُ That Allah does not forgive that you commit shirk alongside Him. But He forgives all else to whom He wills. Major sins a person dies upon them on the Day of Judgment. It does not necessitate at all that the person is a kafir therefore and will end up in the hellfire forever. We believe that Allah forgives all sins except the sin of polytheism. 
associating partners alongside Allah. If somebody does that, commits shirk and dies upon that without seeking forgiveness, repentance, then that is the one who remains in the hellfire forever. But any other sin, major sins included, do not necessitate that a person remains in the hellfire forever. But the khawarij, that's what they said. They have an issue when it comes to iman, which leads to this conclusion of theirs. The issue they have in regards to iman is that they believe faith, iman, is one whole entity that cannot be separated into sections or parts. They believe your faith, your iman, is one whole entity, one unit that cannot be broken up in any way. We know that when you commit sins, your iman, your faith, your iman decreases as a consequence. You're committing sins, you're being disobedient to your Creator. As a consequence, that will impact upon your strength of iman, of faith. It will decrease inevitably. If you are committing sins and doing wrong and not worshipping, then it will impact on your iman in decreasing it. So now we know that when you commit sins, your iman decreases. The khawarij though believe that iman is one solid unit and entity. So now if you commit sins, iman goes down. But if you believe that iman is one solid unit and entity, then how are you supposed to take some of it away and cause it to decrease? You have to take something away because sins decrease your iman. You can't just leave it all there. Sins decrease your iman. But they believe it's one solid entity. So if they try taking any bit of it away, the whole thing has to be taken away. They believe it to be one unit, one entity, your faith. So if it ever decreases or you go low in your iman, then the whole thing is basically disappearing. And that's incorrect. We believe the correct position that your iman <coughs> It can break up into parts, meaning your iman, your faith, when you commit sins, when you do wrong, parts of it fall away and you become less and weaker in your iman because it can split up. You commit sins, some of it decreases away, the rest of it remains. But they believe, no, Iman cannot break up in this way. It is one solid unit. So when you commit a major sin, they say, the whole unit disappears, and therefore you are a kafir. That's basically how it works in their belief. The belief that Iman is one solid entity, 
And when you commit sins, major sins, your iman obviously decreases. But as far as they are concerned, because it's one solid entity, they can't make it decrease by little bits. The only way they can make it decrease is take the whole thing away then. Because they don't believe you can take parts away. And if you take the whole thing away, the person is left with no iman. He's a disbeliever. Hence they say a person who commits major sins and dies upon them, then he's in the hellfire forever. And that is incorrect. A Muslim who does major sins, <coughs> drinks alcohol, steals, fornicates, whatever the sins may be, and he dies never having sought forgiveness from Allah, then it is not the case that he will be in the hellfire forever. Rather, he may be punished for those sins for a time, but then he will exit and enter paradise. As long as he did not commit polytheism with any of those sins. Major sins, but no shirk, no polytheism, no association of partners alongside Allah. But the khawarij, this is one of their main differences with Ahlul Sunnah, with the truth. And also, of course, we know regarding them how the khawarij, from their very title, khawarij, khuruj, they are known for their rebellion, they are known for their revolt, their uh, 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 going out against the rulers. They declare lawful the blood of Muslims and non-Muslims alike. They believe it to be permissible to revolt out against the rulers and to go and try overthrow the rulers and take control by blood, by sword. They are upon extremism. The word extremism, you hear it? Then the Khawarij are upon extremism. They are the ones who declare it permissible to take the blood of Muslims and non-Muslims. And they are the ones who do take the blood of Muslims and non-Muslims. They are upon extremism. And all of these groups that you see today upon the mentality of the Khawarij, they are doing exactly what the Khawarij, the, the seeds that they sowed, the likes of ISIS, Al-Qaeda, Al-Qaeda, all of these types of groups, they are upon the mentality of the Khawarij. And this narration of the Prophet ﷺ tells us about the Khawarij, that they recite the Qur'an. And in other narrations, it talks about how they do other worship, they are praying, reading the Qur'an. They are doing all these acts of worship such that you even belittle your acts of worship compared to them. But the reality is they read the Qur'an. It does not go beyond their throats that they are doing this worship, but it does not benefit them. This worship of theirs, it is not being done upon the Qur'an and the Sunnah with that sincerity upon the correct Aqeedah. So instead they went into this false belief and misguided belief, believing it to be permissible to rebel and to revolt and cause chaos. And all of these uh, events that you see around the world, the Arab Spring that we saw and all these things, the rebellion, the killing, the revolt, the looting on the streets, the killing, 
all of those people who are involved in that type of thing or promote that type of thing, they are upon the mentality or the ideology of the khawarij. That's why the scholars of Ahlul Sunnah, they advised time and time again, do not become involved in the affairs, for example, of Syria. Do not become involved in that thinking there is jihad there. Rather, they are upon many of them, all of those groups fighting each other, killing Muslims, non-Muslims. They are not fighting for Islam or doing jihad for Islam or anything. They are doing fasad as it is known, corruption upon the earth. Hence the scholar said, there is no jihad there. There is no jihad. Do not go out there thinking jihad. No, stay away and do not get involved there. Those people there, ISIS and the other groups, all of them have the ideology of the khawarij. This false methodology, this false aqeedah, whereby they declare Muslims as non-Muslims for sins that they have committed. And then all of their misguidance becomes clear when you see the types of acts that they engage in, the types of haram, impermissible acts they engage in, in their killing of Men, women, children, Muslim, non-Muslim, irrelevant. They will kill them all. They declare their blood to be permissible all. So this narration talks about them. And it says about them that they exit from the religion. Just like the arrow exits from its prey. When you shoot your prey and the arrow goes through it, they go through Islam and they exit. And that's why some of the scholars hold the opinion that the Khawarij are not Muslims. They are not Muslims. That is the opinion of some of the scholars. And even if that is not the opinion that you take, the minimum opinion is that they are an absolutely misguided group of individuals, misguided away from the true understanding of the Quran and the Sunnah. And it mentions here, سِيْمَاهُمْ التَّحْلِيقُ أو التَّسْبِيدَ It mentions that one of their characteristics, one of the ways that you recognize them. In the hadith it says, التَّحْلِيقُ أو التَّسْبِيدَ And they are both perhaps similar in meaning. The scholars have given different explanations as to what the meaning of that is. Some of them said it simply refers to shaving. That the khawarij were known to shave their heads. That is something some scholars have mentioned. Because we know normally, normally a, a clean blade shaving of the head is only an act that was done by Ahlul Sunnah after performing the Umrah and the Hajj. We know during parts of the rites of Umrah and Hajj that you shave the head. Besides that, it is not known that this is a practice to be done at any other time particularly. Doesn't mean it's impermissible, it is permissible. But it was perhaps a sign of them that they would always shave their heads. 
But some scholars, they say, no, that is not the meaning of it. Because that obviously does not symbolize them completely. If you say that is the symbolic sign of them, then anybody with a shaved head, you're going to say is khariji? Of course not. So it's not something which is constant. There are going to be people with shaved heads and they have nothing to do with the khawarij at all. So some scholars say, no, that isn't the meaning. Uh, Ash-Shaykh Al-Thaymeen, he mentions that perhaps it was a certain style of hair that they used to have, whereby they would cut out a circle into their hair, or that they would have a certain circular design on their hair, that it was something different to, their, to just the shaving of all of the head. But even if it meant the shaving of all of the head, we know now that isn't something constant to the sign of the khawarij. Many people do that as a regular thing anyway. And it is permissible, it is not haram to do that. So the hadith, it speaks about the khawarij. But the point of the narration, the reason why Imam al-Bukhari has mentioned it here, is yaqra'oon al-Qur'an. Regarding the fact that they recite the Qur'an. This whole section has been talking about the recitation of the Qur'an when it began. It being from the actions of the servant, your uh, voice and vocal cords, and the words being the words of Allah. And so the Qur'an, it is recited by them, even though they are upon misguidance. So the Shaykh says, أَنَّ الْقُرْآنَ يَقْرَأُهُ الْبَرُّ وَالْفَاجِرُ those who are righteous and pious read the Qur'an and those who are not righteous and pious, those who are misguided and transgress, they may read the Qur'an. Then we come to the last narration here. بَابُ قَوْلِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى وَنَضَعُ الْمَوَازِينَ الْقِسْطِ That we will place the weighing scales of justice وَأَنَّ أَعْمَالَ بَنِي آدَمْ وَقَوْلَهُمْ يُوزَدْ وَقَالَ مُجَاهِدْ القسطاس العدل بالرومية ويقال القسط مصدر المقسط وهو العادل أما القاسط فهو الجائر This chapter now, it references the weighing scales on the day of judgment. We know as part of our belief in the day of resurrection, the day of judgment, that when everybody is raised up from this earth on that day, the day of resurrection, the day of judgment, everybody will be raised to face their accountability on that day. And that right now there are angels one to your right and one to your left that record everything you do and everything you say. And then on that day, that book will be presented to you with all of your deeds written within it, the good and the bad, your actions, your statements, and it will not miss a thing. Everything will be in there. So the accountability will occur on that day. As it's mentioned in the hadith, إِنَّمَا هِيَ أَعْمَالُكُمْ أَحْصِيهَا لَكُمْ They are your actions, Allah says, your deeds, that we hold accountable for you. 
فَمَنْ وَجَدَ خَيْرًا فَلْيَحْمَدِ اللَّهِ So whomsoever finds goodness on that day, then let him thank Allah. وَمَنْ وَجَدَ غَيْرَ ذَلِكَ فَلَا يَلُومَنَّ إِلَّا نَفْسَهِ But whomsoever finds other than goodness on that day, then let him not blame anyone except himself. You are responsible for your actions. You are responsible for what you do with your lives. This is the test upon us all in this world. Allah is the one who created death and life in order to test you, to test you all, which of you will be the best in actions. Who from amongst you will be the best in your deeds? So that life then, the resurrection, all of us will stand before our Lord. As in the hadith that we mentioned, that on that day, مَا مِنْكُمْ مِنْ أَحَدٍ إِلَّا سَيُكَلِّمُهُ رَبُّهُ لَيْسَ بَيْنَهُ وَبَيْنَهُ تُرْجُمَانِ that there is not one from amongst you except that your Lord will speak to you, and there will not be between you and him an interpreter. Everybody will have their accountability and judgment on that day. One of the aspects of that accountability on the day of judgment is the weighing scale. We believe that there will be a weighing scale presented that day, whereby your deeds are weighed up in it, to see your level of good deeds and to see your level of bad deeds, so that it becomes clear to you exactly where you stand. And that will be a balance, a weighing scale, that is absolutely precise. Every deed from the most minute of your deeds will be in there. Hence it mentions, وَإِنَّ الْعَبْدِ لَيَتَكَلَّمُ بِكَلِمَةٍ مِّنْ سَخَطِ اللَّهِ لَا يُلْقِي لَهَا بَالًا يَهْوِي بِهَا إِلَى جَهِنَّمِ Maybe sometimes a person says something, an odd word, doesn't even pay attention to it, but it was something from the displeasure of Allah. Maybe he lied, maybe he backbit someone, maybe he was telling stories, uh, carrying tales, maybe deceiving something evil. And he didn't even pay attention to it. But it will be written down. And on that day, that one odd statement you made of evil, you didn't even pay attention to, you forgot. That statement will be there in your books, in your accountability. And perhaps upon that statement, it may be that you are cast into the fire. <coughs> and the same for the opposite. <coughs> that maybe somebody says something good which pleases Allah. Some good statements, statements that are pleasing to Allah. And you maybe don't focus on them or remember them, but they will be there in your books as your good deeds. And maybe that one odd statement you made, which was good and pleasing to Allah, 
it could be that one statement that causes then by the mercy of Allah for you to be entered into paradise. So there will be the weighing scale on that day where everybody's deeds are weighed within it. The question is, how are the deeds weighed in the weighing scale? In fact, before we get to that question, what are the deeds exactly that are weighed in the weighing scale? On the bad side of your deeds will obviously be all of your bad deeds. On the good side of the scale will obviously be all of your good deeds that you did, but there will be more. On the good side of your balance on that day, there will be all of your good deeds, of course, that you did, but then there will be more extras that go into your good side. So who knows some of the extras that will go into the good side of your accountability and weighing scale on that day. Fasting, Fasting is your deeds. We've already said all your good deeds are going to go in there. On top of that, what else? All your good deeds are in there. What else could be then? Uh-huh. You will be allowed to take other people's good deeds into your own weighing scale. When does that happen? So we know it mentions in a narration where the Prophet said, أَتَدْرُونَ مَنِ الْمُفْلِسِ يَوْمَ الْقِيَامَةِ Do you know who the bankrupt one will be on the Day of Judgment? They said, قَالُوا مَنْ لَا دِرْهَمَ وَلَا دِينَارَ A person who doesn't have any gold or silver, no money, he's bankrupt. But then the Prophet ﷺ explained to them, لَيْسَ كَمَا It's not what you think, that isn't the bankrupt one on the Day of Judgment. The bankrupt one on the Day of Judgment is a person who used to pray, and he used to fast, and he used to do hajj, he used to do all of the acts of worship. But then how is he bankrupt on that day? Because despite the fact that he used to do all of these acts of worship, at the same time, he used to abuse people, swear at people, lie about people, backbite people, beat people. He used to do all of those things too. So he accumulated a lot of bad deeds in relation to other people. So those people on the Day of Judgment, will be given justice. How so? That they will come and be able to take some of the good deeds from that person who had wronged them, oppressed them during this life. They'll be able to take some good deeds in order to make justice between them. Because it's too late for that person to ask for forgiveness on that day now. On the day of judgment, he can't ask for their forgiveness now. That is now in this world. On that day now, justice will be done. Those oppressed people will come and take good deeds away from him until eventually all of his good deeds run out. But there are still people waiting to take from him. There are still people waiting for justice. 
So now his deeds have run out. How can they get justice? They will take some of their own bad deeds out and transfer them to him to make justice between them. So one of the extras that could go into your good side of the weighing scale is the deeds that you take from others who oppressed you. What else? If a child makes dua for you, after you pass away, it's not technically your deed, it's someone else doing something for you. That's a type of something which is mentioned, the dua of others will be a means of aid for you on that day, raising you in paradise in particular. But there are other clear examples of deeds. That's still your deed. Your deeds we're done with. Everything to do with you we're done with. Extras now. That's your deed. You gave the charity still. That's still your deed, I suppose. You taught them. So as a consequence of you teaching them, they did the good things, you still taught them in the first place. Someone does um, a deed um, on your behalf, so... Um, yeah, like a what? Child, a child performs hajj for their father when you die. So, imagine, for example, somebody does hajj on your behalf. Is it possible to do hajj on behalf of another person? Yes, it is. As long as you've done your own hajj first, your personal hajj for yourself. If you've done that, then the next year, anytime in the future, you can go back again. And if you want to do it on behalf of another Muslim who is unable, maybe due to some physical reason or along those lines, you could do it for them on their behalf. Or maybe they've already died and they never did it. So you could do it for them on their behalf. By doing so, you get reward. You get reward for doing that. But that person who you are doing it on behalf of also gets reward. So that will go into their good side of the deeds. Other examples? That's still your deeds. Your deeds multiplied. We want something, nothing to do with your deeds. Or not directly with your deeds. Hajj, Umrah goes with that as well. Hajj and Umrah. What else can somebody do on your behalf? What other deeds can you do on behalf of another Muslim? Charity. It is permissible to give charity on behalf of another Muslim. Perhaps your parents have died, you give in charity on their behalves. So they receive good deeds from that. What else could you possibly do on behalf of another Muslim? Pray. The prayer, impermissible. You cannot pray on behalf of another Muslim. The prayer, you can't do that on behalf of another Muslim. But what else can you do? Fasting. Can you fast on behalf of another Muslim? Obligatory fast. Hmm? Obligatory fasts like Ramadan. So you can fast obligatory <coughs> fasts on behalf of somebody else. Yeah. Where did you learn that? Mm-hmm. 
and whose explanation taught you that you can do the obligatory fasts of Ramadan? You know you want to say me. <laughs> because then you know I'm going to refute you. <laughs> because I never said that. Your explanation slightly mixed up, but you're almost there. Anybody else? <coughs> Someone who makes a vow. The fast. Okay, go on. Makes a vow to do something. So, with fasting, there is a difference of opinion about fasting on behalf of another Muslim. Some scholars say, yes, no problem. You can fast on behalf of another Muslim. Somebody died, they had a few days left to make up from Ramadan. So you can do it on their behalf. That if somebody dies and he has fasting left to do, his next of kin does it on his behalf. So some scholars have the opinion, yes, you can. He died, he had some days left to make up of Ramadan. Do them on his behalf. The second opinion, which is the opinion of Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Al-Qayyim, etc., is... That actually, no, you can't. You can't just make up fasts on behalf of another Muslim. You can only do it in a restricted scenario. And that restricted scenario is... Anybody for bonus points? Because we've definitely mentioned it and done it so many times. The second opinion is what? When can you fast on behalf of somebody? First opinion said open, you can do it. Second opinion only in a specific situation. <laughs> when it's uh, not obligatory by default. So, um... Correct, that, that, that's okay. That's it, correct. <coughs> Fasts, fasting, you can think about it as two types. Not obligatory and optional, but in another sense. Fasting is either obligatory by default. For example, what's coming up in a couple of months? Ramadan, obligatory by default. It's in the Sharia, you've got to fast Ramadan. That's obligatory by default. There are other types of fasts that are obligatory not by default. Like what? If somebody made a vow, if somebody vowed that they would fast next week. For example, if somebody said, give us an example of vowing to make fasts. They vowed that they fast every Monday and Thursday. All right. Vowing to fast every Monday and Thursday. Vowing, somebody vows that next month they are going to do 10 days. Or they are going to do one week. Next month, Next month, is there any obligatory fasting yet? If somebody vows to do a week next month, they've now made a vow, which means the fasting next month of one week has become obligatory upon them now. They vowed it. But by default, before they vowed it, was it obligatory? No. So that is now obligatory fasting, which was not obligatory by default. Ibn Taymiyyah, Ibn Al-Qayyim, etc. They say, fasting which is obligatory by default like Ramadan cannot be done on behalf of another Muslim. Fasting which is obligatory by default, that can't be done on behalf of another Muslim.
But fasting, which is only become obligatory via a secondary means like <laughs> vowing, somebody vowed they were going to do a week next month, but then they died this month. Now they have seven days of fasting upon their shoulders. You can do that on their behalf. Because those seven days were not obligatory by default. So there's a difference on that. But yes, upon those opinions, somebody could fast on your behalf and that would go into your deeds. So that is some of the deeds that would go for your good side. Then the question is, as the Sheikh mentions here, how does that weighing occur? What exactly goes in? One obvious opinion is that the weighing scale, on one side of it, your book with your good deeds written will go in. And on the other side, your book with the evil deeds will go in. And then there's a balance, a way up to see which of the two sides is heavier and which is lighter. The book with your good deeds on one side, the book with your bad deeds on the other side. The evidence for that, Hadith al-Bitaqah, that there is a man on the day of judgment, it's mentioned in a narration, a man on the day of judgment will come with 99 scrolls of evil deeds. Every scroll as you unravel it, it unravels to as far as the eyesight can see. That's one scroll. Then the next one as far as the eyesight can see, 99 scrolls to as far as the eyesight can see full of bad deeds. They get put on to the bad side. Then on the other side, it is said to him initially, do you have anything? He says, no. But then he is told, rather you do and you will not be oppressed. And then that one parchment is brought out which says on it, La ilaha illallah. That is placed on the other side and it outweighs all of the evil deeds. So what was put into the balance, the actual parchments, scrolls, i.e. the books of your deeds. The second opinion is that actually yourself, that the person yourself will go into the weighing scale. And the evidence? Hadith of Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhu. There's a hadith where one of the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam on one occasion climbed up a tree to pick some fruits. As he climbed up, there was a gust of wind that blew his garment and they saw his shins, which happened to be very thin. So thin that the others found it amusing. That how they are so thin, his legs. So then when they found it amusing, the Prophet ﷺ said to them, لَهُمَا أَثْقَلُوا فِي الْمِيزَانِ مِنْ أُحُدْ That those two legs of Ibn Mas'ud will be heavier in the weighing scale than Mount Uhud itself. Indicating that Ibn Mas'ud is placed into the weighing scale, that people perhaps are placed into the scale as well as part of that balancing process. And the third opinion, and there are more than three, but these are the main three. The third main opinion then. The deeds. The deeds, how? What do you mean? We've already spoken about the books with your deeds in them. What do you mean by deeds? Aha. Uh -huh. 
That's one of the opinions which is not in our main three. The third main opinion, that is a lesser type of issue which is different. The actual deeds themselves, not the books they are written in, the actual deeds themselves, which conveniently leads us on to the next narration, completely linked, all of this is together. That one says, Al-Bukhari says, حدثني أحمد بن إشكاب قال حدثنا محمد بن فضيل عن عمارة بن القعقع عن أبي زرعة عن أبي هريرة رضي الله عنه قال قال النبي صلى الله عليه وسلم كلمتان حبيبتان إلى الرحمن خفيفتان على اللسان ثقيلتان في الميزان سبحان الله وبحمده سبحان الله العظيم that there are two words beloved to Allah, to Ar-Rahman. They are very light, easy upon the tongue to say, but they are heavy in the weighing scale. Subhanallah wa bihamdih, Subhanallah al-Azim. It's mentioned that these two words are easy to say, but they are beloved to Allah, and that they, those two words, will be heavy in the weighing scale. Other narrations like Alhamdulillahi Tamla'ul Mizan, your statement Alhamdulillah will fill the Mizan, the weighing scale. So some scholars say your actual deeds themselves directly go in, not the books they are written in. Your actual deeds obviously is a concept we can't understand. Because when you pray and you walk away, where's your prayer that you just prayed? Where is your prayer that you just prayed? It's not something that we perceive like that. But on the day of judgment, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes those deeds in some way to directly themselves go into the weighing scale. And all of these are accurate. All of these are accurate. It's not like differences of opinion like that. All of them are authentic. Your books go in, the people go in, the actual deeds go in, and combinations thereof. <coughs> So all of that is mentioned regarding what goes into the weighing scale. Then the conclusions as to what happens. There are only three possibilities. Either your good deeds will outweigh your bad deeds. فَمَنْ ثَقُلَتْ مَوَازِينُهُ فَهُوَ فِي Whomsoever his weighing scales are heavy on the good. Then he will be in the bliss, success, past. If your good deeds are heavier than your bad. The other option of course is that your bad deeds outweigh your good deeds. In that case, as long as there's no shirk. If there's shirk and a person dies upon that major shirk, that person in the hellfire forever. But as long as there's no major shirk there, there are other sins and they outweigh your good deeds overall. Then some of the scholars say, by definite, absolutely, you will be punished first initially. Then you'll be taken out and placed into paradise. And others may say that still it could be under the Mashia, the will of Allah. Perhaps you will still be forgiven. Perhaps because of the different types of shafa'a that occurs on that day, you will still be okay and pass. And the third possibility is... That they be exactly equal, your good deeds and your bad deeds, exactly equal. In that instance, what occurs to that person? Hmm? 
everything's being done and his deeds are exactly equal. So where do they go? Paradise or hell or where? Well, your answer was different. What did you say? Saying the mount. Uh huh. So they go to the place Al A'raf, Surah Al A'raf. That is a place between paradise and hell. Their, their deeds were exactly equal, neither the good heavier nor the bad heavier. So they go to Al A'raf and they stay for as long as Allah. Uh, wills for them to stay there and then eventually they are taken when Allah decrees when Allah wills they are taken and placed into paradise and then once all the people of paradise have been placed in then what occurs since we studied it in an earlier hadith done everything people of paradise are gone into paradise then what happens since we did it in an earlier hadith there was a narration about how when everybody has gone into paradise there is still some space left in paradise so Allah creates a people there and then and enters them into that space in paradise too so that then essentially brings us to the statement where it says, "Intaha bifadlillah sharhu kitab al-tawheed walhamdulillah alladhi bin'amatihi tatimmu salihat Upon that, it is the conclusion of this particular book, the book of Tawheed, the book of monotheism, from Sahih al-Bukhari, so that is the conclusion of three and some months, three years and some months of study going through the whole of this book. So alhamdulillah that we were able to complete it. Alhamdulillah that we learned, we studied, we read, we benefited from the explanation of a Shaykh al obviously from the hadith being explained of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and it's praiseworthy those who have been here from the very beginning to the end there are some brothers who started three years ago three and a half years ago and that's a praiseworthy thing that they continued from the beginning to the end because the reality the reality of saying that you've done a book is that you've done it all that's the reality of saying it. That's the real meaning of it. If you've missed 20 lessons out of it, 10 lessons out of it, you can say I've done the book overall, but you know there are gaps. So it is praiseworthy for those who have attended every single lesson from the beginning to the end. For those who didn't or for those who joined late, it's not an issue inshallah ta'ala. We're going to begin the new book uh, in two weeks' time, next week is the Cardiff Conference in uh, Wales, Cardiff. Everybody should try and go there for the next weekend, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. In two weeks' time, we're going to begin the new course, and that is Kashf al-Shubuhat, the removal of the doubts of a Sheikh Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahhab. So try and get those books, like I said, that is a small course. That will take no more than four months. No more than four months 
three months, four months, 12 to 16 sessions, will complete the book Kashf al-Shubuhat. So that is a huge opportunity now for those who didn't catch all of this from the beginning to be able to do that easily from the beginning to the end. 12 to 16 weeks, three or four months, and the whole of the book will be completed, every section of it, inshallah. So try and get those books, Kashf al-Shubuhat. PDFs, I don't know. I assume maybe there might be a PDF with English, maybe on the Spub's website, salafipublications.com or something, somewhere you might find a legitimate translation of Kashf al-Shubuhat as a PDF maybe. Try and search and see if there is a legitimate proper translation of it. If there is, then maybe a work booklet can be organized with lines in it and a, a small booklet. Many of the Marakis, they organize them and you can all have a copy, then make your notes in it. Uh, read along the text as we're going through it. So everybody can see exactly what we're reading and what we're doing. So that will be in two weeks time, inshallah ta'ala. We'll just try and do some of these questions then before we conclude. Some of these are old. We've done some of these already. <coughs> this one is suitable. Let's do this one for today and conclude upon it. What are some of the most important etiquettes a person should adopt when attending lessons at the masjid? You will learn that if you have done the 40 hadith of Imam al-Nawawi, in fact, if you've done the hadith of Jibreel, in the hadith of Jibreel, it tells you the etiquettes of attending lessons at the mosque. Hands up if you've done the hadith of Jibreel, just out of interest. Hands up, hands up. Hadith of Jibreel. So, somebody tell us then, where in the hadith of Jibreel does it tell you about the etiquettes of attending the mosque and attending a lesson? Since there are a few here who have done the hadith of Jibreel. How many people know the answer from the hadith of Jibreel? Where it tells you the etiquettes of attending the gatherings of knowledge? Hands up. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, seven, eight, and then more, nine, and we get to double figures, ten. So ten, fard kifaya, the rest of the congregation is excused. Somebody then tell us, who are the hands up over here? The one that... Where in the hadith of Jibreel do we learn the etiquettes of attending lessons? From what part of the hadith do we learn it? At the beginning of the hadith, at the beginning of the hadith of Jibreel, it talks about how Jibreel comes in and comes and sits in the gathering of the Prophet what he looks like, how he comes and sits, all that beginning part of the hadith, within it are the etiquettes of the student of knowledge. So for example, Jibreel, it is mentioned about him in the narration that he was Shadidu Bayal the Thiyab. 
extremely white, clean garment. Scholar said, therefore, when you go to the lessons of knowledge, it is from the etiquettes that you go nice and clean. Not that you go with dirty clothes or, uh, you know, in a disheveled state. You go in a, in a state of cleanliness with your garments clean, nice, in a good appearance to sit in the gathering of knowledge. That's one. Shadidu be ashadidu sawadi sha'ab. That his hair was extremely black, indicating no dirt or anything in it, meaning yourself you are well presented. These are all etiquettes mentioned. Yourself that you are well presented, not disheveled, when you go to sit in a class of knowledge. Your garments and yourself, you present yourself as a talib al Doesn't mean expensive. Doesn't mean your garments have to be expensive. That's not the meaning of presenting yourself well with your garments. It just means that whatever garments you have, you are presenting them in the best state you can. As Shaykh al it's mentioned about him how he used to wear a thawb and he would wear it on Friday, Jumu'ah, put the new thawb on, on Jumu'ah, for Jumu'ah, and then he would wear that thawb for the next six days, up until Thursday. And then on the Jumu'ah, he would put a new thawb on again, and wear that one till the next Thursday. And then on the Jumu'ah, put on a new thawb again. And I mentioned before to some of the brothers, the first time I read that pleased me a lot. <laughs> because when we were in the University of Medina, that's exactly what we used to do, or some of us used to do. Not because we were copying the Shaykh, we, I hadn't heard of this at the time, but because we only had two garments, two thobes. You wear one on the Friday and you wear it all the way till the Thursday. Take it off, put your new one on on the Friday. In that week then, you got to make sure you take care of your dirty one and get it washed by the next Friday. Because by next Friday, if you haven't done it, you've got nothing. So the other one had to be cleaned by the next Friday and you swap it over. Then you wear that one. And then the next Friday comes by then you've washed your other one and you swap it over. And like that for six years. And that's a good thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Doesn't require that you have to have 20 or 30 thobes, one for every day, that you swap on every day of the week. But a person presents himself well. It's not about expensive and money and luxury, but that you present yourself well. You are washed and cleaned and your appearance and your combed hair and your garments are, are, are presented well and clean. That is what is required from the etiquettes of the student. Then it goes on, it mentions how Jibreel came and sat on his knees in front of the Prophet ﷺ. The scholars, they said that indicates a mannerism of the student of knowledge, that his actual posture in the gathering is from the etiquettes. Jibreel came and sat on his knees in front of the Prophet ﷺ. They said this indicates your actual posture in the gatherings of knowledge should be upon a good posture of etiquette, i.e. you should not be slouching, you should not be lying down, and if you are good, fit, healthy men, you should not be leaning against the walls. If you are good, fit, healthy men, somebody who has reason, to sit against the wall, then so be it. 
But otherwise, it's not to slouch or to lean or to sit in some way where you look like you're just relaxing at home. You don't sit in those types of postures. In the gathering of knowledge, they say from that narration, it is from the etiquette you sit in a good posture, like the posture of a student to his teacher, in a good, nice, proper way, not slouching, not bent, not this way, not that way, in a good, straight manner that you sit in the gathering of knowledge. And then they also mention from the etiquettes the fact that Jibreel, when he came in, there was a gathering already going on. He came in from the back and didn't just sit at the back, he came all the way, sat at the front. Of course, that does not mean that a person who comes in late comes and tries to squeeze in at the front now. But what it means is when you do initially come, that you all do initially try and sit close to the teacher. That is from the etiquettes of knowledge, that you sit close to the, to the teacher, close together in that gathering of knowledge, not far away. And the scholars, they used to say that the closer you sit, generally the more you benefit, as opposed to the further you sit away, then the less impact it has on you, the less impact it will have on you. So I'm sure you know the impact these classes have on your ears right now at the front, compared to sitting far away at the back. There is an impact upon the student sitting right next to the, the one who is teaching. It's completely different to being sat fifth, sixth, tenth row at the back. And so the scholars, they used to say, strive to be near the front of the gatherings of knowledge. So those who are serious, those who are keen, making notes, studying, memorizing, they should come and focus on gaining the seats near the front and close to where the teaching is occurring from. Those are all a few etiquettes mentioned, taken and derived from the hadith of Jibreel. And of course, there are many other etiquettes. Perhaps the prerequisite of all of these etiquettes is sincerity, ikhlas in studying, of course. But another prerequisite for these etiquettes But you actually need to be in the lesson to be able to fulfill the etiquettes. Absolutely. A prerequisite to any of these etiquettes is that you actually get here first and attend the gatherings of knowledge to then implement these etiquettes. So that's important. And now we have this opportunity starting from the new book. And the book is short. It's not like this type of course, three years, two or three months, four months. And all of the books that we do now are going to be that type of style. A few months here, a few months there, finishing various books. So now the opportunity is there again. It is there again to revitalize, to uh, uh, bring up the effort level again, and to make sure you have that fixed in your head, you attend every single class. That's the true way of the student of knowledge. There's no such thing as missing here, missing there. You want to do a book properly, the only way you can do it properly is attending every single class. Because if you miss one, you miss class number eight. When you come to class number nine, you will not benefit like the one who attended everywhere up to class eight so far. You miss number eight. You will not benefit the same for number nine or even the rest of the whole book because of that gap in the middle. You've got a gap and that gap influences the rest of the book and what is coming. 
So the reality is, for proper studying, it is regular, constant, every week. So put this into your diaries. This is a regular thing in your week, the weekly class that you come and study. And Kashf al-Shubuhat is a very important book as well, because it addresses many of the false beliefs of the Sufis, many of their beliefs in going to graves and doing shafa'a with the Prophet, and calling upon the Prophet, going to his grave, various things that they do. A lot of those details are mentioned, wasila, tawassul, all those details are in that book. So it's an important book, and inshallah ta'ala, everybody should encourage one another, encourage others who perhaps weren't as regular this time, a new opportunity presents itself now to attend and to study, and not to be influenced adversely. Not to be influenced by, well, such and such a brother, he missed the odd one there. So it's not a big deal if I miss it. If somebody else missed one, or others are missing, do not let that influence you. As it's mentioned in the Albiri poem that we did once, if you see your colleagues up in the sky and you see yourself down in the ground, why is that? Because they are studying and striving and you are not. So it's a good opportunity now in two weeks time, inshallah ta'ala, Strive on that, get the books, make a workbook if it's possible from the PDFs. And inshallah in two weeks time then we'll meet and we'll begin with that after Isha as usual.